We're in the Gospel of Mark as we study through books of the Bible, find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter six, and we're in verses 45 through 56, so please open your Bible there, navigate on your tablet or phone. We publish our transcript each week. It can be found at transcript.calvaryhanford.com, or you can get on a mailing list and receive the transcript on Saturday morning so you can be studying ahead. Uh, The topic we're gonna find in this section of scripture, Jesus walks on water in the fourth watch of the night to rescue his disciples. The title of our message, I go out walking after midnight. Man, big country crowd. I didn't think anybody would get that. So, all right, I was gonna play Patsy Cline, you know, just so you didn't think I was crazy. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate the opportunity to be here to study your word. We're gonna talk about reflecting upon the word, and so I pray that we would um, experience that uh, as we talk about it. May our hearts be softened, Lord, and be penetrated by your Holy Spirit. May we have ears to hear what he has to say to our church and to each of us individually. I pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Keep calm and carry on is the slogan that refuses to die. In the year 2000, an old poster was discovered at Barter Books in England. It was a keep calm and carry on motivational poster produced by the British government in 1939 in preparation for the Second World War. The poster was intended to raise the morale of the British public, threatened with widely predicted mass air attacks uh, on major cities. Although nearly two and a half million copies of the poster were printed, and although the air attacks did in fact take place, the poster was hardly ever publicly displayed. Now it's everywhere as a slogan as folks substitute almost anything for the carry-on part. If you haven't heard this, then you're living under a rock. Uh, And so keep calm and carry on or keep calm and almost anything else. Uh, At Lemoore PD, one of our chaplains had a shirt made that says keep calm and call the chaplain. Uh, And so it's, it's, I'm not gonna give you any other uh, examples, otherwise we'd be here all day. It's likely someone near you today is wearing a keep calm t-shirt. And so just uh, take a look as you leave. Now I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't wearing a keep calm t-shirt t-shirt, but it would have been appropriate for his walk on water to come to the aid of his disciples as they were struggling in the storm. Mark's account, undoubtedly given to him by eyewitness passenger Peter, stresses how absolutely freaked out the disciples were. He says of them in verse 51, they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. This wasn't a good kind of marveling because you immediately read in the next verse, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now I pause there and I ask, Am I sure that my heart isn't hardened? Do I understand about the loaves, referring back to the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and other spiritual things? Now, those are great questions we hope to ask and answer this morning. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two other questions. Number one, has what you've learned about Jesus penetrated your heart? And number two, does what you've learned about Jesus preside over your heart? Let's take a look, first of all, at penetrating hard hearts in verses 45 through 52. Now, of all the amazing things that happen in these uh, few verses, it should stun you to hear said of the disciples, their heart 
was hardened. It's not something we should take for granted. They had been with the Lord for quite some time and they had witnessed many miraculous things. They had recently themselves been empowered to perform miracles, yet their hearts were somehow hardened. Keep that in mind as we work through the verses because if their hearts were hardened, then so can ours be. So let's pick it up in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he sent, while he sent the multitude away, excuse me. Now the other gospels that record the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000 tell us that the people wanted to make Jesus king right then and there. Instead, Jesus made his disciples leave by boat and he dismissed the crowd. Shouldn't he ride this wave of popularity and establish himself as a bona fide leader? Well, the answer to that obviously is no. There was too much work yet to be done, mostly in his disciples. In just a few hours, they would be screaming like little girls, thinking Jesus was a phantom coming to them on the water. They were nowhere near ready to co-reign the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Do you feel like you're ready for something right now? Something's holding you back. People don't recognize your potential and all of that. Don't be in a hurry because sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we should. These guys, Jesus, you know, he seemed to have the mojo to be the king, but they were not ready, uh, not by a long shot, to co-reign with him, and we'll see why. Neither were the people ready to be subjects of this kingdom. They were there only for physical and material prosperity. They were not there to repent and receive spiritual wholeness from Jesus. And besides all of that, the leaders of Israel would reject Jesus officially, leading to the postponement of the establishing of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. It now awaits Jesus' second coming. So verse 46, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Jesus Christ had an incredible spiritual work ethic, if we can put it that way. This chapter started with him taking his disciples on a retreat to try to get some R&R. They'd been working so hard they could not even find time to eat. We don't know the last time they ate. And so Jesus said, hey, let's go uh, to a deserted place on a retreat for some R&R. But when they got to the retreat center, a deserted place, a huge crowd had gathered. Jesus and the 12 apostles then personally ministered to their needs, culminating with bringing each person in that crowd of five or 10 or 20,000 people a meal. More exhausted than when all this began, Jesus thought the best refreshment would come from all night spent awake talking to his father in heaven. Jesus has an interesting take on burnout and on physical exhaustion. Obviously exhausted, as any of us would be, Jesus said, you guys go over, crowd, you're dismissed. I'm gonna uh, spend all night in prayer with my father. We can't be exactly sure which mountain it was, but it involved some sort of an ascent. It was a climb. He climbed, contributing even more to his exhaustion. If Jesus' work ethic seems extreme, we could take a look at the Apostle Paul, but then we just see the same fervor to serve the Lord. If it's rest you think you need and time away from serving God's people, you might consider it uh, as a time of prayer rather than a time of relaxation. 
And so when, when I think what Jesus is teaching us is that when, I, when he felt spiritually needy, his idea of R&R was to stay up all night and pray. I, I uh, you know, haven't been there in a long time. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Some of you, are, are you nodding? If you, sh- if you should nod right now and then people will think that you've spent all night in prayer and then you'll have to repent. Uh, but anyway, verse 47. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. This reads like a movie script giving the actors their cues just before the director calls action. And so Jesus, you're cued onto the mountain. And the disciples, you guys are gonna be right in the middle of the sea rowing. And we'd say that the devil enters the scene as well, kicking up a violent windstorm to oppose the progress of the boat and to threaten the lives of the twelve. Don't be mistaken, the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar, he's a thief, he's a murderer. And this storm, putting all the, uh, the accounts together, it would seem to be demonically inspired, satanically inspired, as he seeks to kill Jesus' disciples, or at least uh, do them some harm. Now commentators are almost unanimous in seeing this as a picture of the age in which you and I live. Jesus has ascended, not to a mountain to pray, but to heaven, where he ever lives to intercede in prayer for us. So in the story, Jesus ascends, he's praying for his disciples. In the age in which we live, Jesus has ascended from a mountain into heaven, and we read that in heaven he prays for us. We're not in a ship, we are in the church, sent out to minister to spiritually needy people everywhere. And the world is in turmoil, partly at least on account of the devil, who is called the God of this world. And so it's a little picture of the bigger picture that we find ourselves in. Verse 48, then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. I cannot emphasize enough how tired these guys must have been. They started out exhausted. They put in a full day with overtime. Now we see it's 3 a.m. and they were rowing with all their might to try to get to the other side. If you've ever been to our family camp and participated in the amazing canoe race, you row for about a minute and 30 seconds unless you're in Jake Kelso's boat, uh, and then you can be rowing for hours. But anyway, uh, just, (laughs) I'm sorry, Jake, but it's true. I gave up the canoe race years ago. I just don't have the stamina for it. These guys, yes, they're seasoned fishermen, but they're rowing against the storm, and it's 3 a.m. And again, think of the day that they had had and the days leading up to that day. I mean, these guys are physically exhausted. Have you ever felt like you're just spinning your oars? Worse than getting nowhere, you sense that there's some kind of trouble or trial as well? You can be there and be right where God wants you to be. That's why it's so important to listen for and then follow God's leading. Whatever else they might have wondered, the disciples on that boat in that storm could be absolutely certain they were exactly where the Lord had sent them. Jesus himself had told them, get in that boat, go to the other side, and so there could be no doubt that they were in the Lord's will. Now, you and I, we sometimes do doubt if we're in the Lord's will. It's it's not like the Lord is speaking to us in front of us. We don't see the Lord. But in a a way, we have something so much greater. Uh, We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we just need to develop our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. 
and, and to give us God's leading. And it's so important because trials will come, troubles will come, tragedy will come, and one of the things that anchors you is knowing you're right exactly where God wants you to be and that uh, this isn't a situation of your own making. Now, sometimes, honestly, you are in situations of your own making. You're outside of the will of God. You miss the will of God because of your own selfish desires or whatever, and then you need to repent and get back where the Lord wants you to be. Now, Mark says, he saw them. It would seem that Jesus watched them for some time struggling against the wind and the waves. Moved as he always was with compassion, I'm sure Jesus wanted to give them immediate aid. I mean, don't you think he prayed for them while he was up there on the mountain? Don't you think he asked his father to calm the storm on their behalf? Of course he did, but still the father waited until the fourth watch of the night. And that was 3 a.m., and then the Father sent Jesus to them. Now that is something in itself to really focus on. Jesus, you'll remember, was also exhausted from the previous day's activities, and he climbed a mountain, and he'd been up all night. Now, instead of his Father letting him calm the storm from a distance, or miraculously rapturing him over onto the boat, his Father sends him to his disciples on foot. He says, essentially says, all right, Jesus, go help them. And so Jesus has to go down the mountain. He has to go to the shore. He has to get to the water. And then he has to walk on the water against the wind over waves. Now, whenever you see this depicted, you know, in any picture or whatever, Jesus somehow is always walking on a smooth path. There might be waves behind him, but he's always got smooth sailing. It wasn't like that. This is the start. Have you seen The Deadliest Catch? You ever watched The Deadliest Catch? I'm not sure how high these waves were, but there's some waves. I'm thinking, you guys are all dead out there. What are you doing out there in these junky boats? There's no calm anywhere. And so the Lord is literally walking out to them over the waves and down the waves. Oh, how he loved them. Oh, how he loves you and me that he would do such a thing. Not just walk on water, but into and upon the storm. The words would have passed them by turn out to be a poor translation and need explaining. D. Edmund Hebert writes, and he says, would is more literally wished or desired, while have passed by is to come alongside of. As Jesus approached the boat, he deliberately changed his course so that he would come alongside the boat, following a parallel course with it. Obviously, his intention was that the disciples should recognize him and ask him to come to the boat with them. Sometimes we get the impression that he's kind of walking by, kind of like looking back and saying, last one to Bethsaida is a rotten egg or something, you know. But no, he wants to get to them and he wants to be a part of the struggle that they have and alleviate that struggle. And it says in verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. Now you have to understand Jesus didn't look like a ghost. Yet when they saw him, their first thought was it couldn't be Jesus. In fact, they probably reasoned it couldn't have been any living person. It must therefore be a ghost, a phantom of some kind. It was too much for them to think that Jesus or anyone else could walk on water. After all they'd seen Jesus do, 
they couldn't believe or they weren't open to the possibility that he could be coming to them on the water. And so verse 50, for they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and he said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Not one among them held a contrary opinion. And so they were a typical church committee. Uh, I can say that because we don't really have committees, so. I have not, you, you think, oh, G, Pastor Gene just insulted all the committees in our church. Well, that's zero. Uh, they all believed it was a ghost and were troubled. And so he spoke to them these words of comfort to alleviate their terror. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now the indication is that at once the wind stopped. It was absolutely calm. And also the sea was like glass. Now it's one thing for the wind to stop. But it's another thing for all that choppiness to just be gone immediately. I mean, usually it takes some time for waves to to die down. And so the sea is like glass. And one of the other gospels reports that they immediately found themselves on the shore at their landing site. And so Jesus comes onto the boat and bam, no storm, glass sea, and we're at the shore. And so it's a very obvious miracle. Something to note is that Mark omits the part where Peter asks to go out and join Jesus on the water only to sink after a few steps. It's interesting because Peter is the person who gave Mark the material for this gospel. It's useless to speculate as to why the story was omitted. Some commentators say it's because Peter was humble. Some say he was embarrassed. Uh, So it just depends on your take on it, I guess. But we can't speculate, we're not told. But we can notice The Holy Spirit is a good editor. He is the one inspiring the writing of this gospel and all the gospels and the Bible. He knows what he wants said and what he does not want said. And that's just something to remember as a Christian that we are always listening for the uh, voice of the Spirit, his still small voice. We want to speak to people the things that he wants us to tell them. Certainly the gospel, and sometimes it takes so long for people to get to the gospel and to just cut, we feel like we have to set people up from Genesis to Revelation before we can actually give them the gospel. I remember it's kind of comical now to look back on, but the fellow that led me to Christ, my good friend Lauren Faulkner down in Riverside, he, I was kind of you know, going through some spiritual things. We'd seen the late great planet Earth. Pam gave her life back to the Lord. I was in like a spiritual fog. And so he took me out to breakfast, uh, Jay's Cafe in Riverside. And uh, we're sitting there. He told me everything he knew about the Bible. Everything he knew about Jesus Christ. He just kept talking and talking and talking and talking. And finally, he exhausted himself. And he said, do you want to receive the Lord? And I said, well, yeah, I thought that's what this was all about. <laughs> it was insane. And, and so I, it was kind of cute, really, now to look back on it. But, so sometimes you just need a good editor. When I teach the Bible, when people teach the Bible here at the church or anywhere, of course you leave stuff out. There's no way you can say everything there needs to be said about every verse every time. And so you have to hear from the Holy Spirit. Lord, what do you want said? What's your emphasis for these people right now? As I said earlier, the words amazed, beyond measure, and marveled add up to they were freaked out. That's how we would put it in our version. Next verse is a commentary on why they were so freaked out. He says in verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart 
was hardened. Loaves, of course, a reference to the uh, feeding of the multitude with the loaves and fishes. Now, I got a kick out of the commentators I read this week discussing this verse. They are all quick to criticize the disciples for their dull lack of understanding about the loaves. And they go, they go off on them about you know, how dull they were and how they don't understand it. But almost in the next paragraph, the commentators go on to say, well, we don't exactly know what Jesus was talking about either. How the loaves, uh, we don't know what it is about the loaves that he meant. Now, the place to start would be with because their heart was hardened. Whatever that means, that's the reason why they misunderstood about the loaves. I think we can dismiss the usual culprits for hardening hearts, which are sin and stubborn disobedience. The disciples weren't in sin, and they were clearly not disobeying the Lord. No, they were obeying his every command. It's what got them out in the middle of the sea in the storm in the first place. Another way of describing something as being hard is to say it is difficult to penetrate. And I think that's the idea here. Spiritual things were not penetrating the disciples' heart. They saw them, they experienced them, and then they were letting them lie in the past and moving on to the next thing, and there was no penetrating of their heart. Why not? Well, one commentator described it this way. He said, and I quote, a neglect to ponder and meditate on Jesus' glorious works. I like that. Simply put, the disciples were not meditating upon, they were not pondering what Jesus' works might mean beyond their immediate effect. I don't care for the word meditate. It's a perfectly good word, but it's taken on occult connotations. Maybe it's just me, but anytime I hear the word meditate, I see somebody in a lotus position with their fingers like this, burning incense. And uh, that's not Christian meditation. Ponder is an okay word, but it doesn't seem like a serious word, does it? Uh, what have you been doing? Pondering. That's something you do at Starbucks when you don't have any time, you know? It's like, and so I like the word reflecting. It indicates a thoughtful remembrance of things you've heard or experienced. It's a purposeful pause to put what you've learned or experienced into perspective. Had they reflected they might have been brought to a spiritual understanding that if Jesus could do such a miracle as multiplying the loaves, be nothing for him to get to them through a storm. They may not have expected him to come walking on water. I mean, who had ever seen that before? But it would not have thrown them into terror when they saw him. They would have rejoiced and said, oh, that's how he's gonna do it. He's not on the boat with us this time like last time to be woken up and calm the storm, so he's gonna have to get to us some other way. Here he comes. I told you he'd come. Out in the middle of the sea, as the wind blew contrary and got ever stronger, as the waves threatened to overwhelm them, it would not be too much to think that they could have remained calm knowing that Jesus would do something to get them to their destination. They did not need to be freaked out. I mean, we know this. You and I get freaked out still, uh, you know, and, and it's just, just something that we, we try not to do. Well, you look at the disciples and say, hey, guys, don't freak out. It's, it's all gonna work out. Read the next verse, okay, guys? You know, it's gonna work out. And, and that's, the mes- that's a message to us as well. Now, let me give you an example of how reflecting on the loaves might have penetrated their hearts. Before Jesus fed the multitude, Mark mentioned that he looked upon them as sheep not having a shepherd. Clearly, Mark intended for us to see Jesus as their shepherd. 
Then Mark told us that Jesus had the people sit down and he said, on the green grass, that's in verse 39. Mark is the only gospel writer who supplies this fact. It means that it was near Passover on the Jewish calendar. That's when the grass would be green out in those hills. But upon further reflection, something else emerges. If you put the people being told to sit down on green grass together with the idea of a shepherd and his sheep, what might that remind you of? Well, it might remind you of the 23rd Psalm where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And so you have the shepherd and the sheep and the green pastures. To finish out this line of thought, that amazing popular psalm, which all these Jewish boys would know by heart, goes on to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I'm not a surfer or a sailor, so I had to look this up on an oceanography site When describing waves, the wave crest, that's the highest part of the wave, and the wave trough is called the valley between the crests. A little reflection, and at least one of those guys on that boat might have made the application that Jesus, their shepherd, would be with them some way, somehow, in the valleys of the shadow of death at sea. And so let's just stay calm. I can see John coming to this conclusion. He is real spiritual. Say, guys, I'm not even gonna row anymore because it's clear we're not getting anywhere. Let's just wait for our shepherd to get us. This doesn't seem like a green pasture, but it is in in terms of the lesson he's gonna teach us. Let's just wait and see what's gonna happen. Hence the question for us, what, excuse me, has what you've learned about Jesus penetrated your heart? Our better question might be, do you allow it to penetrate your heart? Do you Are you concerned about it penetrating your heart and do you take steps towards that? Your heart and my heart can remain hardened to a certain extent, not necessarily by sin or by stubborn disobedience, but by a lack of reflecting, a lack of interacting with the word of God in such a way that I ask what it means to me. Gino made an insightful comment at our men's fellowship this week. We're studying the book of Acts on Wednesday mornings in the chapter where the Apostle Paul makes a Nazarite vow. Now, commentators have a field day with it. They mostly can't wait to criticize the great apostle for for somehow compromising uh, and and giving up his liberty in Christ and uh, performing this Nazarite vow. And, And the page after page is written about that. Here's the comment. Rather than ask, should Paul, we should ask, would I? You see, the book of Acts wasn't written so we could criticize Paul, but so that we could grow in the Lord, and we do that at least in part by reflecting. What would I have done? What does this mean to me? Can I really put myself in this situation? What is the Lord telling me? There has to be that personal application. And God wants to make it. And the Holy Spirit is always attending the teaching and the uh, reading of his word, whether you're reading it for yourself or someone else is reading it out loud. All we need to do is be aware that there is that step of openness and expectation. Okay, Lord, show me. Maybe he'll show you right then. Maybe you have to meditate on or ponder or reflect upon uh, that a little bit more. 
But we can't be like, we don't wanna be like James describes where we're hearers of the word and not doers. Now we normally think of, you know, God tells us to do something and we go and do it. But I think also in that category would be we hear the word and we do it in the sense of interacting with it, of letting it get into and penetrate our otherwise hardened hearts so that the Lord can be molding and shaping us into his image. Now in the remaining verses, does what you've learned about Jesus preside over your heart? These verses seem like an afterthought, but they wouldn't if you were one of the people who were healed or delivered, they'd be precious to you. And so they're precious to us. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. I have to say it, it's something every Bible teacher is obligated to say at this point in the story. They crossed over, they didn't cross under. Get it? It's one of those kind of pastoral things that you say and think you're pretty clever. Jesus told them to go over to the other side. He didn't say they would go under to the other side so they could have held on to his word. Now, I also feel an obligation to point out that you and I cannot always claim that promise. Some ships sink. This ship did not. Jesus said, you guys are gonna go over to the other side. They could have had absolute confidence that they were gonna make it. The apostle Paul was in a violent storm at sea. The Lord told him what was going to happen and Paul related it to the crew and the passengers when he said, we must run aground on a certain island. Hey, how about that story of Jesus calming the storm? I like that one. Yeah, no, that's not what's gonna happen. There, there's no calm to this storm. This is Euroclidon. This is the big one. And our ship is gonna get broken up. And we're gonna float on beams to Malta. And God hasn't told me this, but it'll be in the book of Acts. When I go to make a fire, I'm gonna put my hand into a bunch of twigs and a viper's gonna bite me, a poisonous snake. I should puff up and die immediately, but I'm gonna be miraculously healed. What a God we serve. <laughs> Some ships sink. Now, I'm making light of it, but it, it, you need to know this you might find yourself in a storm that God will stop at some point or you might find yourself in one that destroys your ship and leaves you floating. The Lord remains your shepherd and you need fear no evil regardless. Verse 54, when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Now the prophet Isaiah says that the Messiah would be an ordinary looking Jew. There was nothing spectacular about Jesus. I'm not saying he was ugly, he was average. The people recognized him because he had been there before working among them. Go about the work of serving others, do it in obscurity, and they will come to recognize Jesus in you. In their time of need, they will seek you out. Most of you have had that experience where some friend or neighbor or coworker or fellow student has come to you for advice or counsel or something greater when their life was falling apart. It says in verse 55, the people ran through that whole surrounding region. They began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard Jesus was. Jesus was moving from place to place in that whole region. Which way did he go? Must have been repeated many times that day as folks tried to ascertain his location and destination. So somebody heard, he's in Hanford, and people would run to Hanford. He's not here. Which way did he go? He went west. Oh, he's got to bypass Armona. Let's get to Lamar, you know, whatever. And, and so that's what it was happening. Jesus was moving along and people had to find him. It's just interesting. 
Those too ill or infirm to get to Jesus on their own were graciously carried to him at obviously great discomfort to the caregivers. Verse 56, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Once before, you'll remember, a woman with a 12-year bleeding problem had tried to sneak up on Jesus, pressing through a crowd to touch the hem of his garment. When she did, she was completely healed, but the Lord knew what she had done and made her give a testimony of his healing. In this visit to Gennesaret, this method of healing was used. Now, the Gospels record something like 30 to 40 individual healings Jesus performed. He did a lot more, but they record about 30 or 40, depending on how you categorize them. And he also did mass healings like the one recorded here. There's no one method or mechanism for his healings. There's no divine formula to discover to get Jesus to heal. He healed in a variety of ways by touch. He did it from a distance. He did it precisely so we would not be able to identify a pattern and think that we could do the same. And yet, people still study all of Jesus' healings to come up with a scheme of how to heal people. Uh, How did Jesus heal the blind? And how did he heal the deaf? And what are the methods that he used? And that kind of a thing. But God goes out of his way to do Uh, various different things so that we would step back and think this is all just God's divine power manifested in certain ways and the ways, the methods, the means don't matter. So the question is, does God heal today? And the answer is absolutely he does. And then the follow-up question is, does he always heal like he did when Jesus was on the earth? And the answer to that is no. When he was on the earth, it was a unique time. One of the evidences that he was the Messiah and the Savior of the world was his ability to perform miracles of healing and of exorcism. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah, Jesus said, go back and tell John the things you have seen and heard, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus said, you know that I am the Messiah because I am performing the works of the Messiah. They are miracles of healing and exorcism and things like that. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to establishing the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Jesus was rejected by the leadership of Israel. The kingdom was therefore postponed and it waits until Jesus' second coming to the earth to establish it, and now we live in the church age. And so the question for us is, what are the characteristics of the church age? Is it miraculous healings and deliverance from demons left and right wherever we look? The answer to that is obviously no. I, for one, do not believe that the majority of Christians throughout the church age the multiplied millions, maybe even billions of Christians from the time Jesus ascended into heaven until today have all lacked the faith to perform miraculous healings to the same degree that Jesus Christ did. It's just not possible. Statistically, it wouldn't even be possible. And so we come to the conclusion that we're living in a different age with its own characteristics. 
Though the Lord can and does still heal, he is glorified most often in this age as people see strength in the weakness of his people. That's how God is glorified. You and I could think all day that it would give God the greatest glory to see us go down to Adventist health and empty that place out. Go room by room and pray for people because that's essentially what Jesus did in Bethsaida or have them come here on their hospital beds. But that's not happening because we don't live in that kind of a time. God is now made perfect in our weakness His answer to our prayers for healing for ourselves and for others is most often the answer he gave the Apostle Paul when he said, my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul wanted to be healed of what he called the thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, it was massive. He said it was the messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. He prayed for it and the Lord said, I am giving it to you as a gift so that my strength can be made perfect in your weakness, and Paul rejoiced in it. He said, well, if that's the way it's gonna be, I'm not gonna go around trying to say that I don't have the faith, or that the church doesn't have the faith, or that there's some problem. Obviously, we live in a different time. Now, the gifts of God, they haven't ceased. All of them, including healings, they are for today. But it's clear we're living in a very different dispensation than when Jesus was physically present on the earth. If you've been here for these studies, and Mark, you know I've uh, recently been using the example of demonic possession to make the point that we're living in a different dispensation. Indulge me if you've already heard this. I think it's important. People wonder why today we see so few cases of demonic possession as if that's a bad thing. You hear some people talk from the pulpit and they say, well, you know, we don't see demons possessing people. Hey, I'm for that. That's a plus It's not a negative, but then they go on to act like we're just not looking for it. That we are are spiritually dull and we, we don't see what's happening all around us. Last time I drove by the Hanford Cemetery, there weren't guys naked in there, chained up, screaming. We just don't see that much demon possession because there isn't that much demon possession because the devil's not an idiot. When Jesus, in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the centuries that it covers, there's not one recorded case of a demon-possessed individual. There may have been, we don't know, but it wasn't rampant. Then all of a sudden, Jesus bursts on the scene, and doesn't it seem like everybody's demon-possessed? You can't swing a cat without hitting a demon. I mean, seriously, everywhere Jesus went, there were legions of demons that were against him, and it matches up like a warfare scenario. I've many times told you how when he comes across the sea and the legion of demons meets him, it's like a D-Day invasion. You know why? Because the devil got together with his minions and said, hey, the son of God is on the earth. What are we gonna do? And somebody said, let's possess people. And they did. And Jesus said, well, this is nothing for me. I'll cast you out left and right and prove my power over you. And then Jesus sent it into heaven. People were still demon-possessed. They are still demon-possessed, but not to that same degree because the devil has moved on and taken over the internet. (laughs) Hey, I use the internet, but it's pretty true. It's, It's, you know, the internet is maybe the best Worst thing that has ever happened to the human race in terms of it's good stuff and it's very, very bad stuff. So the devil, he doesn't need to possess you. 
You're destroying yourself because of the other ways that he's working in the world. And so why camp out on this notion that we're not seeing demons in people that aren't there? And, and you know, the devil would like for us to, to stay in that first century mode when he's moved into the 21st century in terms of his strategy. Mark showed us Jesus moved with compassion, feed a multitude. He shows us Jesus still moved with compassion, move among a multitude, healing them. Does the compassion of Jesus preside over your heart? That's the major point of this whole chapter. We're taking it a section at a time and showing some of the important points, but this chapter is about the compassion of Jesus Christ, about him being moved. It presided over his heart. It's what got him to come in the first place as a man. And you see it on every page in every episode. It doesn't have to be said he was moved with compassion. He always was. And it should preside over our hearts as well. It should be our constant motivation, a desire to help others, especially by exposing them to the gospel. The very first thing, and, and I don't do this either. I'm not, I'm, you know, I know you think I'm perfect. I look perfect, but I'm not. Um, I have to remind myself the very first thing that I should think about when I see anybody is that Jesus died for that person. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, what they're doing, it doesn't matter their ideology or their ethnicity or their race or anything like that. Jesus died for that person. Now from there, there are a lot of different strategies and there's governments and politics and all this stuff. I understand that, but Jesus died for the sins of the world, for the sins of every single person ever conceived. And then my second thought ought to be, how do I get the gospel to this person? Is it possible to get the gospel? How, what's God's strategy for them to hear about the eternal life that his son makes possible for them so that whatever it is they're doing that I totally object to, they will repent of and be transformed into a person that is sharing the gospel themselves. And then we go from there. This is what we really think in our lucid moments when we allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts. When we reflect upon the word of God, we're brought to this kind of tenderness, if you can use that word, to be more like Jesus. Jesus.